KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Wednesday, December 16th. The pandemic worsens burnout for caregivers of disabled veterans. That story's coming up, but first, let's do the headlines. San Diego County public health officials reported more than 1,800 new COVID-19 infections and 32 deaths on Tuesday. Meanwhile, staff at Rady Children's Hospital received their first rounds of vaccines. In three weeks, healthcare workers will need a second round. This first shipment of vaccine doses is expected to immunize about 70 percent of local healthcare workers. When vaccines are more widely available, it's possible your employer could require you to get a COVID-19 vaccine. San Diego employment law attorney Dan Eaton says employers can't force people with compromised immune systems or bona fide religious objections to get a vaccine. But for everyone else, Eaton says employers have broad latitude as part of their duty to maintain a safe and healthy workplace. California's eviction moratorium is set to expire next month. State lawmakers are working on new legislation to try and keep renters in their homes. The bill would extend eviction protections through the end of next year, but landlord groups say nearly two years of missed payments is too much. Under the proposal, tenants would have to pay at least a quarter of their rent to avoid eviction. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Burnout is a common problem for many family members who care for disabled veterans. And for many of them, the pandemic has made things even harder. Now, a new program is working to give some caregivers a break. Kathy Carter reports for the American Homefront Project. Before COVID-19, Lori Gary of Austin, Texas, had a network of support when it came to care for her husband, Tom an Air Force veteran diagnosed in 2016 with service-related ALS. And once COVID hit, we had to stop everybody coming into the house. So it was just crazy stressful. Even before the pandemic, Gary's daily responsibilities as her husband's primary caregiver left little time to focus on anything else. Caregiving for me because of Tom's high-level disability is, am I going to get a shower today? Am I going to get to sit down and actually drink a hot cup of coffee? Now, after eight months of nearly going it alone, Gary has received some much-needed help with a free respite relief program from the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. The nonprofit founded by the former senator offers support and resources to military caregivers. Twice now, respite workers have come to Gary's house to prepare meals and clean the kitchen. That's a huge job because Tom has a feeding tube and his food has to be chopped, blended, and liquefied. Those are all things that, in addition to my normal caregiving duties, I have to take care of. So you just tend to forget that it takes a tremendous amount of energy. 
Professional caregiving company, CareLinks, and the Wounded Warrior Project donated $1 million each to launch the nationwide Respite Relief for Military and Veteran Caregivers program. The Dole Foundation's CEO, Stephen Schwab, says the organization saw the need as the pandemic has meant military caregivers were dealing with long-term isolation. Anxiety, depression is skyrocketing among caregivers. And all of that equates to a crisis happening in millions of homes across America right now. In a recent Dole Foundation survey, respite relief was the top need identified by veteran caregivers. Still, says Schwab, many have concerns about safety because they're looking after people with serious illnesses. So on a typical day, that veteran, that caregiver, that family is vulnerable. Now that we're inside a pandemic, it can be life-threatening. Schwab says before going into the home, professional health care workers complete a symptom check and recipients are also screened for COVID symptoms. That's important for the health of people like Air Force veteran Laura Narvez, who suffered a traumatic brain injury in 2016 after an IED attack. The blast caused her to suffer post-traumatic stress disorder and also damaged the nerves that control everyday functions like her blood pressure and heart rate. That's why a notice with a red stop sign has been taped to the door of her home near Clearwater, Florida, since March. It alerts any would-be visitors she has a weakened immune system. My doctors called the house and was like, are you staying at home? And I was like, yes, I'm staying at home. Because literally, like, everything they started saying for people who were succumbing to it, um, I was checking all the boxes, basically. Joseph Narvez is his daughter's caregiver. He's also a fellow with the Elizabeth Dole Foundation and an advocate for other veteran caregivers. These days, he hears a lot about how overburdened they feel because of COVID-19. Respite care is paramount. So it's my job now to educate them and where to get help and how to get help. Stephen Schwab of the Dole Foundation expects the program to cover 75,000 hours of care for more than 3,000 caregivers. The next step, he says, is to develop a long-term plan for respite relief. Because we want to change the model of the Department of Veterans Affairs and the ways that they're going to offer respite care post-pandemic on a sustained basis. So those investments are going to be super important. Because after the professionals leave, veteran caregivers are back on duty. And for many, it's a full-time job. That was Kathy Carter reporting from Tampa. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Now that San Diego County has its first shipment of COVID-19 vaccines, you're probably wondering when you can get one. KPBS's Jacob Ayer has more on the timeline. The exact timeline for COVID-19 vaccine rollout is not set in stone, but the order of people who will receive the shots in California will follow the CDC's three-phased approach. Phase one has three sub-tiers to account for the limited supply of COVID-19 vaccines available. In Phase 1A, California will focus its efforts on vaccinating its critical populations, including healthcare personnel and long-term care facility residents. Phase 1B will come afterward and vaccinate essential workers, some of which include firefighters, police, corrections officers, and those in the education, utilities, transportation, and food and agriculture sectors. Phase 1C will then focus on vaccinating adults older than 65 or adults with high-risk medical conditions. As vaccine supplies increase, Phase 2 will take effect. 
During this stage, there will be a focus on ensuring access to vaccines for all critical populations who were not vaccinated in Phase 1 and providing access to the vaccine for the general population. In Phase 3, when there is a sufficient supply of doses, the goal will be ensuring equitable vaccination access across the entire population and helping communities with low coverage. A group of Latina leaders in San Diego is calling for more support for their communities. This comes after new county data shows how the pandemic has disproportionately affected them. KPBS's Max Rivlin-Nadler reports. The data from the San Diego Association of Governments shows that half of Latino residents in San Diego live in an area with higher-than-average COVID numbers. And over 50% of all COVID cases in San Diego are from Latino residents, who only make up 34% of the population. In addition to the health impact, the leaders, part of the group Mana de San Diego, say the pandemic has crushed job sectors filled with Latinas. Mary Salas is the mayor of Chula Vista. The hardest hit sectors in the economy were tourism, retail, and education. So if you look at the numbers, represents 80% of the job losses in San Diego County. The Latina leaders stress that any recovery for these communities will need to prioritize educational and training opportunities for the lowest paid workers in the state. California's monarchs are in trouble. The western population of the iconic butterflies is crashing. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson has more. The holiday weekend survey of monarch wintering sites only found 2,000 of the orange, black, and white butterflies. Hundreds of volunteers helped scour known sites along the Pacific coast. We have monarch sites as far north as Mendocino County and down into Baja, Mexico. Emma Pelton is a senior conservation biologist who's tracked the species for a number of years. She's alarmed by the latest findings. The last two years, we were at all-time lows, just below 30,000 butterflies. So we knew they were in trouble, but we didn't expect a decrease to just about 2,000 monarchs. So we've had another order of magnitude decline. Meanwhile, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says the butterflies deserve endangered species protection, but not until the agency resolves other priority projects. The San Diego Zoo's Paige Howarth says that might be too late for the Western monarchs. I think this is a, a warning to the greater, sort of the greater population. This petition for listing was submitted in 2014. And here we are in 2020 with 2,000 butterflies, less than 2,000 butterflies that figured out how to get to overwintering sites. There were 200,000 migrating monarchs just three years ago, and there were millions in the 1980s. Coming up, longtime county supervisor Diane Jacob nears her last day working for the Board of Supervisors. We'll hear from Jacob for one final time as she reflects on her seven-term tenure. That's next, just after this break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. 
The San Diego Board of Supervisors is moving from a Republican to a Democratic majority for the upcoming term, and Republican Diane Jacob is heading into retirement. KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh asked Jacob about her reflections on her 27-year tenure with the Board of Supervisors. Here's that interview. You know, with you and longtime Supervisor Greg Cox leaving the board next month, it really is the end of an era at the county. How are the needs of the county different now from when you took office in 1993? Well, if we look back to 1993, the county was on the brink of bankruptcy and it was drowning in red ink. And the board at that time had the challenge of fixing the finances. That was the number one priority. Until we got the fiscal house in order, we could not really move forward to do anything else as we have done over the last 28 years. So fast forward to today, in fact, just a couple of years back, is we have huge challenges now facing us with a housing shortage, the homelessness issue, behavioral health issues. And those issues were always out there, but not like they are today. So big, big challenges today that are very, very different and I think the new board is is really going to face those challenges head on. You know, the county board has been frequently criticized for being too careful with its reserves and not addressing major problems like social services for people in need or mental health services. Now, as you step back and assess your time in office, do you think some of those criticisms were fair? No, I don't. I don't at all because the reserves were exactly what we needed to have in place in case of emergency. And we saw the 2003 Cedar Fire where the county was able to step up and use some of those emergency funds to help those fire victims. And also in 2007, had we not had the reserves that we had today, we we would not have been able to help our businesses with the economic stimulus program and rental system, other programs where we're helping both business and individuals during this COVID crisis. How has the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the county, how has that compared to other challenges the county has faced during your time on the board? It's like no other. This pandemic is something that, that none of us have ever seen. Uh, during my time on the board. And the only thing in my lifetime I could go back to was the polio epidemic back in the 50s. And I was in high school at the time, and I remember that. I was in junior high and high school at the time, and I remember it very vividly. But this pandemic is even different than that. It Huge challenges, the effect not only on the health of the people in San Diego, but also on the businesses. And then There's been so much disagreement in the community and even with elected officials, even with elected officials on my board about how this should be handled. And it's it's easy to sit back and be critical of somebody else when you're not walking in their shoes and you don't have the same information. And I, you know, I could be as critical as anybody else in terms of how I feel that this has been handled. But that really, at this point, doesn't do us any good. We really need to come together. The lights at the end of the tunnel, the vaccinations are out today. And soon people will get those vaccinations. And I hope they do take advantage of them. 
it's not going to do any good to have the availability of the vaccinations if people will not get the vaccine. Are there things that you think the county board should do, should be sure to do to respond to the pandemic and overcoming the economic fallout? Because of our uh, we've been on sound financial ground. We have been able to put in almost $30 million to uh, assist our businesses. And then even more than that, to assist some folks with their rent. And we've waived fees in different departments uh, to help our businesses and individuals. So from a county government standpoint, I feel that we've done as much as we can do and as much as we can afford the feds need to step up and it's very frustrating to watch the arguing in Washington about another stimulus package when we have our businesses sitting here shut down once again and and really struggling some of them may not may not be coming back how did the devastation of the cedar fire back in 2003 how did that change the county's attitude toward fire protection It was the first time in the history of San Diego County that a fire in our backcountry area actually went into the cities. What happened at that moment in time was a realization of all five supervisors and three of the five basically represent cities. But it was a realization then with the Cedar Fire that, hey, this is a regional issue. Even though I had been saying it for some time, it was kind of like, Oh, that's a backcountry issue. That's Jacob's issue. That's Horn's issue. And we were able then to really pick up on the momentum to bring together the unincorporated area volunteer fire agencies. And there were about 35 of them at the time that we consolidated. And that's about 1.5 million acres. But actually, the story of the San Diego County Fire Protection District, as we know it today, goes way back to 1993. When I came on LAFCO, I had asked for an analysis of the discrepancies with both service and finances of our fire departments in the unincorporated area. And they were huge. With that, we move forward little by little, working with fire chiefs and working with others to try to bring money in to help out those volunteer fire departments. You see, it was back in the 70s that the county got out of the fire business, and I felt that was a bad decision, and I had set out then to try to make that right. It took quite a few years. We kept putting more money in. We did a micro study, a macro study. We got all the data, all the information, and then the Cedar Fire hit. And that moment in time really speeded up the infusion of money that the counties put into it to the tune of over $575 million a year. And that's over 50 million annually. We have the fire stations in the unincorporated area that house firefighters uh, 24-7. We also have paramedic service that we don't have. So the end result is we are able as a county now with fire protection district to be a partner with other city departments and also departments like Lakeside and San McGill that are fire districts to be able to come together to fight a fire. 
And I can tell you without question, two things. One, we are far better prepared today to fight a fire and respond to those emergencies, which include medical emergencies than we were ever, ever before. And we have coordination of effort in this region among our fire agencies like none other in the entire country. And what more do you think the county might be able to do to help us with our fire protection needs? Well, we will continue to invest and in, in to improve in, in the fire protection area. Uh, there's always more to be done, but the heavy lifting has been done. So that enables us now to really invest as we have in the last couple of years and other issues that we're facing, the challenges of homelessness and, and behavioral health. We have a lot of people on the streets that have mental health problems. And then our seniors, um, those with Alzheimer's disease. And we, we just had a conversation earlier this morning with West Health and we have geriatric emergency departments now we will in every one of our hospital emergency departments and those are specialized emergency departments for senior citizens that will specifically address the needs of those seniors so it's from seniors it's not just the fire and the emergency medical but it's uh, the homeless situation and, and, and across the board. And let's not forget our kids. We've done a lot. And I go back as an elementary school teacher and one of my passions are kids. And I saw firsthand when I was teaching that you, you get out there, get the kids out there on a ball field as a part of a team. They're learning life skills. Uh, they're actually by exercising and, and involving themselves in physical activity, that carried directly into the classroom, into their academics, to where I saw students that were not doing well in their math or reading or their academics go out onto the field and be successful, come into the classroom, and it really improved their academics in the classroom. And, and also for our kids, if they're exercising, which is good for them, it's keeping them out of trouble. So we've managed over the last 28 years in partnering with others. We've built over 130 different ball fields and, and pools and parks and playgrounds and you name it. Um, my goal was to have the best recreational facilities in the region and all targeted towards our kids. Now, it's well known, Supervisor Jacob, that you've been a major critic of San Diego Gas and Electric. You've argued against rate increases, the Sunrise Power Link, the public safety power shutoffs. In fact, you've had a real feud going with SDG&E. What do you hope the county's relationship with SDG&E becomes moving forward? Well, let me first be clear. My problem with SDG&E are not the workers that are out there. Uh, day in and day out. It's with the management and those that set the policies for SDG&E. And frankly, it's a monopoly. And whenever you have a monopoly of any kind, and in this case, electricity is a lifeblood commodity. It's something that we as people cannot do without. And there's a huge lack of competition in the market. So what I'm hoping going forward is that there is some competition to SDG&E, 
the ultimate would be to form a municipal, uh, municipal utility district. I don't know if the region's elected officials collectively have the stomach for that, but if you look at public power and public power systems, not just in California, but throughout the nation, it's a lot cheaper. And we sit here in San Diego County with SDG&E and we have some of the highest electricity rates in the region. And that's not right and it's not fair to our businesses. It's not fair to individuals. There's a better way. One challenge that remains is for the county to develop a climate action plan that won't be thrown out in court. Why has that been so difficult? Well, the county got it wrong. And unfortunately, part of the problem was looking at the mitigation being out of the county and even out of the country for what they call these offsets where you could mitigate in in our region on the greenhouse gas emissions. That was one of the primary reasons that the court said that the, the county's climate action plan was invalid. And it should have been fixed a long time ago. Uh, Supervisor Fletcher and I, we have not voted to appeal the court decision. Uh, I, both of us, Nathan can speak for himself, of course, but, but both of us believe very clearly that the county should have focused all its money, all its energy on fixing the climate action plan. I had sat down some time ago with representatives of the Sierra Club, and I truly believe that there is a plan, there is a way to come up with a climate action plan that works, and there just needs to be the will to do it. And with the majority of the board, I have not seen the will to do just that. And the county staff has gotten it wrong. Our lawyers got it wrong. So now's now's the time. Get it right. You think the new board will be more successful then? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. During most of your time on the board, the board was all Republican. Now there's a Democratic majority. How do you see that working out? I don't see the issues that we face in local government being Republican or Democrat. The issues are people issues and the needs of people need to be met regardless of what the party is. It should be people over party. It should be people over politics. I'm very, very concerned about the term limits and the fact that a member of the Board of Supervisors now will be limited to two terms, which will be a total of eight years. I'm not sure that term limits is going to give a person enough time to really dig in and take on some, some major projects. I mean, I, I can go back and tell you some a couple of the projects has taken me more than 20 years to complete, but you never give up. So I believe that there will be a shift in priorities, a shift in, in spending. But again, I would hope that the new board members will keep an eye on what's important to the people and to listen to the people and hear what people are saying, not just a small vocal minority, but all the people. It's that silent majority too that is not so vocal that that needs to be supported and needs to be heard. That was outgoing Republican Supervisor Diane Jacob speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh.
That's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com.